This is the Poetry Magazine podcast for the week of May 7th, 2018. I'm Don Cher, editor of Poetry Magazine. I'm Christina Pugh, consulting editor for the magazine. And I'm Lindsay Garbett, associate editor for the magazine. On the Poetry Magazine podcast, we listen to a poem or two in the current issue. Hanif Abdurraqib is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic. His first book of essays is called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. His first book of poems is The Crown Ain't Worth Much. He's poetry editor at Muzzle Magazine and a member of the poetry collective Echo Hotel. Abdurraqib's poem in the May issue is For the Dogs Who Barked at Me on the Sidewalks in Connecticut. At first glance, the poem may seem like a commentary on race, but Abdurraqib told us it's about a limitation dogs have that may help when it comes to grief. Dogs have this really short memory, and even when they love someone deeply, they don't necessarily have a way to place them all the time. And I thought, how freeing that must be to have that kind of willing lapse of memory in the face of pain must be something very sweet. The text of the poem is in a block, a big square paragraph with justified margins and slashes instead of line breaks. Abdurraqib said he hoped the reader would feel as if he or she was sitting in a group of chairs listening to a story. Sometimes I think a block text poem asks a reader to speed up their reading of it, kind of to get through it in in kind of um, foot-to-the-gas reading. Um, And I think the slash is somewhat of an aggressive hard stop. It's so visual, and it, it asks the reader, hey, pause here. Here's the poem. For the dogs who barked at me on the sidewalks in Connecticut. Darlings, if your owners say you are not usually like this, then I must take them at their word. I am like you, not crazy about that which towers before me, particularly the buildings here and the people inside who look at my name and make noises that seem like growling. My small and eager darlings, what it must be like to have the sound for love and the sound for fear be a matter of pitch. I am afraid to touch anyone who might stay long enough to make leaving an echo. There is a difference between burying a thing you love for the sake of returning and leaving a fresh absence in a city's dirt looking for a mercy left by someone who came before you. I am saying that I, too, am at a loss for language. Can't beg myself a doorway out of anyone. I am not usually like this either. I must apologize again for how adulthood has rendered me. Us, really. I know you all forget the touch of someone who loves you in two minutes, and I arrive to you a constellation of shadows, once hands. Listen, darlings. There is a sky to be pulled down into our bowls. There is a sweetness for us to push our faces into. I promise I will not beg for you to stay this time. I will leave you to your wild galloping. I am sorry to hold you again for so long. I am in the mood to be forgotten. In the Mood to be Forgotten is such a wonderfully resonant ending here. And it speaks to me to something this poem is doing that's interesting, that sort of sense of almost a familiar or received phrase like, in the mood for love or something like that, um, with the repetition of darlings as well, which, which feels a little bit earlier in time, a little bit anachronistic a little bit, you know, sort of plucked out of a more sentimental way of approaching love. And I think it's interesting the way that these expectations are playing off of this very symmetrical block 
text formally where, in which clauses are divided by, by virgule, by, by slashes, um, rather than punctuation marks. And there is that, that really almost harsh sense of, of stoppage in the middle of some of these clauses, sometimes at unexpected times. So it, to me, it's a combination of a kind of uh, fond anachronism in a certain way and a you know, making use of something that is a product in a way of you know, word processing and very contemporary technologies. I think that's kind of a really interesting dissonance in the poem. Well, it's an apt way for the poem to work because I, I mean, at least I think of the sidewalks as being laid out in blocks, you know, with some regularity. And that rhythm of walking along uh, the sidewalk and sort of stopping and starting as you encounter other sentient beings and having to decide what kind of encounter there is and you sort of look at somebody and move on or don't or get out of the way or don't get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So the sort of rhythm of the poem is nicely embodied in the way it's laid out and then the kind of encounters that this rhythm leads the poet to examine. That encounter is really interesting, too, in the ambiguity this poem allows for or the sort of subtle distinctions it makes in talking about different actions. So one that stands out to me is when Hanif writes, What it must be like to have the sound for love and the sound for fear be a matter of pitch. And that sort of subtle difference that he notes in the way dogs might communicate, but he also subtly implies that it refers to the people inside those buildings also are subtly relying on pitch in order to communicate. Mm -hmm. And then he, he does it again by talking about... There is a difference between burying a thing you love for the sake of returning and leaving a fresh absence in a city's dirt looking for a mercy left by someone who came before you. I like how there are multiple actions in this poem that are considered from multiple angles. And so even that moment at the end that you were talking about, Christina, to hold you again for so long, I am in the mood to be forgotten. You would think you would hold on to something because you want to remember it or be remembered, and instead it's in order to be forgotten. It seems connected to what he was saying about how um, we can envy dogs, perhaps, for their ability to forget, which is something that human beings don't have in the same way, especially in matters of love. And... It seems to me the poem is also doing something pretty interesting. You mentioned perspective. You know, what Keats talked about is negative capability, you know, trying to imagine what it must be to, you know, sort of be in the consciousness of this dog who is, um, you know, forgetting, as you were saying, Lindsay has, you know, the sound of love and the sound of fear uh, being a matter of pitch. When I read that, too, I was thinking about how, you know, it has to be that way for dogs, right? I mean, in the sense that they're reacting to things like pitch and, you know, sort of subtle changes of, of emotion in a, a human's voice and, and things like that. It, it seems to me that's one of the things that this poem is really interested in doing is it's trying to get into that consciousness that in a way is uh, not governed by the verbal. And so it seems like it's, again, doing that really interesting push and pull between something completely kind of symmetrical and geometric and something that requires you to push ahead into the unknown of uh, a consciousness that you can't 
experience, really, as a human being. Well, and I think there's something inside the poem, too, that is about human consciousness. I am like you, not crazy about that which towers before me, particularly the buildings here and the people inside who look at my name and make noises that seem like growling. There's almost this sort of reliance upon a visceral sense about how to navigate and negotiate the collage of animal existence that we enter into. I mean, in the news constantly, there are sort of terrifying scenes that can take place almost anywhere. So I think like in the back of everybody's mind, there's something that might happen that doesn't feel usual. And so there's a sense of a downward gaze, kind of like trying to avoid things, avoid danger, um, you know, sort of not feel towered over even though you are and try to find your rhythm and momentum to push forward. It's interesting to the the first line here. Darlings, if your owners say you are not usually like this, then I must take them at their word. I think all that is so important. And the other part of me uh, laughed at it a little bit, right? Because if you have the experience of dogs uh, eating the plants in our condo gardens and all these these sorts of things that dogs do, and then, you know, sort of the owners come back and say, oh, it's not usually, the, the dog isn't usually like this, is also something common in everyday life in which you have the dogs, the owners, and how the two interact. So I, I kind of got a little laugh out of the, the first line as well. I love that word darlings, too, that he, I think at least three times, refers to the dogs as darlings, but it's also implicitly sort of referring to the readers as darlings. And I think part of what made me sort of laugh about darlings as well is there's that common writing phrase, kill your darlings, right? That you're supposed to take out something that's sentimental or means too much to you in your own writing. And instead, Hanif is writing to the darlings. Mm -hmm. He's not taking them out. Listen, darlings. There is a sky to be pulled down into our bowls. There is a sweetness for us to push our faces into. I promise I will not beg for you to stay this time. I will leave you to your wild galloping. I am sorry to hold you again for so long. I am in the mood to be forgotten. You can read For the Dogs Who Barked at Me on the Sidewalks in Connecticut by Hanif Abdurraqib in the May 2018 issue of Poetry Magazine or online at poetrymagazine.org. We'll have another episode for you next week where you can get all four May episodes all at once in the full-length podcast on SoundCloud. Let us know what you thought of this program. Email us at podcast at poetryfoundation.org and please link to the podcast on social media. The Poetry Magazine podcast is recorded by Ed Herman and produced by Curtis Fox and Catherine Fenelosa. The theme music for this program comes from the Claudia Quintet. I'm Lindsay Garbutt. I'm Christina Pugh. And I'm Don Scher. Thanks for listening.